Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Asad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Peter Adamson, and we'll be talking about his book, Philosophy in the Islamic World, A History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, which is actually volume three of his much longer series on precisely the topic of history of philosophy without any gaps. Peter Adamson is an American academic who was professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. He has written articles, monographs, and edited books, mostly on philosophy in the Islamic world and ancient philosophy. He is the host of the weekly podcast, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, which now has more than 25 million downloads and led to the publication of a book series, this book series. Adamson received his bachelor's degree from Williams College with summa cum laude in 1994 and his PhD from the University of Notre Dame in 2000. He worked at King's College London from 2000, becoming professor of ancient and medieval philosophy there in 2009. In 2012, he became a professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. So without further ado, I now welcome Peter Adamson to our podcast. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So, Peter, you have this massive history of philosophy podcast covering a wide range of philosophical traditions across time and space. It's truly incredible, both the depth and the breadth of what you've covered on it, from Greece to India to China, and of course, the Islamic world, which is the subject of our conversation today. Um, So I'm very curious, as I'm sure our listeners are as well, to know what led you to this point. Can we get a brief biographical sketch? Why the history of philosophy and what's behind the words without any gaps? Okay, well, thank you very much for the kind words about the podcast, first of all. Uh, So I'm from Boston, or from near Boston, and I went to Williams College, as you said, to get my BA. And at the time, and maybe still, it had a very kind of historical focus for philosophy majors, which was my major. And so I really, when I went to grad school, was thinking, I know I want to do philosophy, hopefully for a living. And to me, philosophy was basically just history of philosophy. That's what I thought the subject really was about. And so for me, the question was mostly, what area in the history of philosophy do I want to work in? And there I really made my choice for a couple of reasons. One is that I had also been taking a lot of literature classes. And in the literature classes, I was especially interested in medieval literature. So I thought, oh, medieval philosophy would make sense. And also I just thought, I should be trying to get into an area of the history of philosophy where there was still a lot of research to do. I mean, I love Plato and Aristotle, for example, especially Plato at the time. But I thought, oh, you know, how am I ever going to contribute anything to the scholarship on Plato? Whereas medieval philosophy, that seemed like an area where I could maybe contribute something, get some articles published. And while I was in grad school at Notre Dame, which I really um, picked as a graduate program because it was this place where I could specialize in medieval. While I was there, I got into uh, Arabic language philosophy basically for the same reason. In other words, I didn't have a personal connection to Islam or anything like that. It was really much more of a tactical decision like, okay, well, if there's a lot of uh, scope to do new research in Latin medieval philosophy, then probably even more so there will be a lot of scope to do new research in Arabic philosophy. And of course, that was true. I mean, I was kind of guessing at the time, actually, because I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was a good guess. And then I got very lucky, got this job at King's College London right out of grad school, very much to my surprise, actually, at the time. And they 
also have a department that's very strong in history of philosophy. And in fact, um, someone who was there who had just retired was Richard Sarabji, who's a famous scholar of Aristotle and the late ancient reception of Aristotle. And he always used to brag about the department and sort of suggest as a way of kind of marketing the department at King's that we were unusual in being a department of philosophy that could cover the entire history of philosophy without the gaps. So he used to say without the gaps, I think. But I so I stole the phrase from him. I, and I think I'm upfront about this. I mean, I say in the foreword of the first book in the series that I did get the phrase from him. So I try to credit him for it. And um, I mean, I, I like the idea, first of all. So I like the idea of doing the history of philosophy as a kind of continuous story where you don't only cover the most famous figures and only, you know, the time of Plato and Aristotle, the 17th century and Wittgenstein or whatever, but you really do the whole thing. So you go back to the beginning, you go through everything and you try to cover it all. So I liked that idea, but also since I, as it happened, I had wound up working on philosophy in the Islamic worlds. I also had this kind of personal commitment to the idea that it was worth studying philosophical traditions that are often ignored or underappreciated and also um, not just traditions, but specific authors. Um, so I would say the, sp the kinds of philosophical authors who tend to be underappreciated are either from these other philosophical traditions, especially non-European traditions that aren't studied or researched so often, at least in European languages. That's one. Um, two is figures from traditions that are well studied, but who aren't kind of the most prominent figures in those traditions. So for example, any medieval philosopher other than Thomas Aquinas, and of course there are hundreds and hundreds of them. Aquinas is the only one who's famous, which doesn't really make any sense actually, philosophically or historically. I mean, he's great, but there's a whole bunch of others that are great too. Um, and often, by the way, women fall into this category, right? Because pre-modern or even pre-20th century female philosophers are almost always considered to be quote unquote minor, right? <laughs> In uh, scholarship. Um, so um, that would be the, actually that would be the third category. So you have sort of um, the idea of covering non-Western figures, the idea of covering minor figures who are men. And then you have the idea of covering so-called minor figures who are women. And these three things kind of feed into the project of the podcast. So what I'm trying to do is uh, do a history of philosophy that gets all of those traditions and figures in, which doesn't usually get done. Well, thank you for that. So on the, I, now I want to move on to the framework you use. And so you note on, on the very first page of your preface that, quote, for many readers, the most unexpected feature of the book will probably be the attention I devote to non-Muslim thinkers in the Islamic world, end quote. So I wanted to break that down for our listeners as well. What do you mean when you use the term Islamic world? Is it referring to Islam as a religious phenomenon or a part of the world where Islam was a dominating power? Is it sort of like Marshall Hodgson's concept of the Islamicate? And does it include places where Muslims were minorities, like India, for example? And then can you tell us why you incorporate non-Muslim thinkers? Sure. Well, actually, you, you kind of gave the answer there as part of your question. It's effectively the same as the concept of the Islamicate, which I take to be roughly speaking, the areas of the world where Islam has political dominion, right? So 
the reason I picked the word the, or the phrase actually Islam, Islamic world or philosophy in the Islamic world is first of all, I didn't use Islamicate because I don't really think it's a real word. <laughs> <laughs> well, <it's academia. laughs> and I, I mean, uh, so I can see why academics might want to use the word Islamicate when they're talking to each other, but I'm not talking to academics, at least not only academics. So I wanted to use a word that I thought people would know what it meant. Um, so the other thing is that there's this long running dispute about whether to call the subject we're talking about here, Arabic philosophy or Islamic philosophy. And there are famously arguments against both. So the problem with Arabic philosophy, Arabic, so actually one problem with Arabic philosophy is that people always think that you mean Arab philosophy. So they don't realize that Arabic is the name of a language in that phrase. And so you always have to explain, I don't mean Arab, I mean Arabic. But it, that's kind of a stupid reason to worry about it because that's just a confusion on the part of the listener. But um, there's a more serious problem, which is that a fair amount of philosophy in this tradition is not in Arabic. It's in Persian or other languages like Syriac, Hebrew. Um, so the problem, and then the problem with Islamic philosophy is that it puts the religion of Islam front and center in a way that's rather misleading. One way that it's misleading is that a lot of the figures we're talking about here, so Avicenna would be a good example. And as I think we're going to get on to talk about later, Avicenna is the most important figure in the whole book, right? And to calling Avicenna an Islamic philosopher isn't exactly wrong. I mean, he was a Muslim, but I don't think it would be fair to say that Avicenna's philosophy is mostly about, for example, giving a philosophical account of Islam. That's not the project. So he is, he's more like a Muslim who's a philosopher, right? In a way that, so actually it would make more sense to call Thomas Aquinas, to mention him again, it would make more sense to call Thomas Aquinas a Christian philosopher than to call Avicenna an Islamic philosopher. And people don't call Thomas Aquinas a Christian philosophy. They say medieval philosophy, usually. Um, and then, but then there's actually a worse problem with the phrase Islamic philosophy, which comes to the last part of your question, which is that a lot of the figures I wanted to cover are either Christians or Jews. And the reason I needed to cover them is because their philosophical activities are intimately bound up with the history of philosophy in, in, among Muslims. Uh, a couple of good examples of this would be that um, there's quite a few Christian philosophers who, first of all, kind of make the reception of Greek philosophy into Arabic possible because they are actually the translators. A lot of the translators from of Greek works into Arabic are Christian. And then, especially early on, there are quite a few Christian philosophers who are involved and are even colleagues with Muslim philosophers, either, either they're translators or they're philosophers or they're both. So that's one case. Another case would be Jewish philosophy in Andalusia. There's a big section of the book, actually the second section of the book, which is about philosophy in Islamic Spain. And I think actually most of or the majority of the figures I cover there are Jewish, not Muslim. I mean, I cover quite a bit, quite a few Muslims as well, but I think there's probably more Jewish thinkers in that part of the book than Muslim thinkers. So this is responding to something that I found kind of um, dissatisfactory about the way that the historiography 
is usually done because what you usually find is treatments of medieval Jewish philosophy that are separate from treatments of medieval Islamic philosophy, if you want to call it that. But that doesn't really make any sense to me. So for example, if you wanted to name the philosopher who's most like Maimonides, who's the greatest Jewish philosopher, you would probably name Al-Farabi or Averroes. You wouldn't name another Jewish philosopher necessarily. Or if that's an exaggeration, at least it's certainly true to say that you can't understand Maimonides without understanding the projects that was being undertaken by someone like Al-Farabi. So for me, this is all just one story. And the reason it's one story is that we're talking about a culture which was multi-religious, so multi-ethnic, multi-religious, spanning a huge geographical and chronological range. And to me, that is just like a, a nice sort of unified story within the broader history of philosophy. And that was really the story I wanted to tell. So now I'd like to move on from the the geographical territory to intellectual territory. So the book has three parts, right? You, the, the, you've touched upon them, the formative period, Andalusia, and later traditions. And this is split between 62 chapters. Now, listeners, don't be alarmed. Each chapter is only about six to 10 pages, and it's typically focused on one philosopher or one idea. So Peter, you write that, quote, the most illuminating way to divide the book chronologically is a simple division into two periods, before Avicenna and after Avicenna. His career ends what I call the formative period of philosophy in the Islamic world, end quote. Um, and I know you've brought him up already, and which is a great transition into my question. Uh, can you elaborate on this tripartite division and then share why Avicenna becomes a breaking point between one period and the next? Sure. Um, that's a good question. So this really gets to the heart of the structure of the book. Um, maybe the first thing to say about this is the way that the topic is usually introduced. So in addition to not thinking about Christian and Jewish philosophers, usually, if you look at histories of uh, Islamic philosophy that have appeared before, they often have focused very much, not always, but often have focused very much on the period I'm calling the formative period, which would be up to the 11th century, maybe the 12th century. So a typical picture would be that philosophy in the Islamic world begins with the translation movement, which is like 8th, 9th, 10th century uh, of the common era. And then you have this generations-long process of digesting and interpreting Aristotle and other Greek texts. Um, and then that reaches its sort of double culmination in Avicenna and Averroes. Averroes dies in 1198, so right at the very end of the 12th century. And then that's kind of the end of philosophy in the Islamic world. And this happens, as it were, just in time for the Latin Christian philosophical tradition to take over what they've been doing, translate Avicenna and Averroes into Latin along with Aristotle. And then you get going with high scholasticism, Aquinas, Duns Scotus, William of Ockham, and you're off to often running towards the early modern period with Descartes and Leibniz and Kant, right? So that's the, the basic idea. And so if, if this is... Um, this is a kind of way of thinking about philosophy in the Islamic world that sees the tradition as filling a gap between late antiquity and medieval philosophy, especially later medieval philosophy, almost as if the reason why Muslims did philosophy was so that philosophy had somewhere to be while the Europeans were kind of crawling around in the mud, killing each other because it was the dark ages, right? 
um, sort of Monty Python idea of how how uh, medieval Europe was. Okay, so that picture isn't entirely wrong because, in fact, of course, there was this translation movement, and in fact, you do have generations of thinkers responding to the Greek tradition, and Avicenna and Averroes are very important figures for shaping scholastic philosophy. So that's all true. The The part that's wrong is that philosophy in the Islamic world certainly does not end in 1200 or anywhere, even in shouting distance of that. In fact, it just never ends at all. So my book takes up the story to the 20th century. And one of the things I'm trying to show is that there are literally centuries worth of philosophers and philosophical texts that respond not so much to Aristotle and other Greek texts anymore as to Avicenna. So what happens is that he comes in, presents himself as this philosophical genius who's rethinking the whole philosophical system of Aristotle. And this project is massively successful. So he becomes the kind of new starting point for later philosophy, much in the way that you might think of Kant, for example, in European philosophy. So once you have Kant, everyone after Kant has to think about Kant, whether they want to or not. And similarly, in the Islamic tradition, after Avicenna, who dies in 1037, really everyone just needs to start thinking about Avicenna because he's so influential, such a powerful system. Um, and so it, that means that you have a kind of double chronology, double uh, or a twofold chronology, as you said, or as actually you quoted me saying. <laughs> um, you have the time up to Avicenna, which I call the formative period because it's getting us to Avicenna. And then you have the period after Avicenna. The complication is that the situation over in Al-Andalus is different because it's geographically very remote. They don't necessarily have complete access to the texts um, from the Eastern tradition. And so you find that in the 11th and 12th century, there are a lot of philosophers still engaging in projects that by the standards of the East are kind of old fashioned and no longer relevant. And the paradigm case here would be Averroes. So Averroes spends his career writing these commentaries on Aristotle, in some cases, huge, long, detailed commentaries that would only really be suitable for someone who wants to spend their entire life thinking about Aristotle, right? And I always say that this would be like someone making black and white silent movies in the 1960s or 70s. I mean, it's just like not... So from the point of view of the East, this is just not where it's at anymore, even anti-philosophers or critics of philosophy like Al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali writes a book called Incoherence of the Philosophers, and it's not about Aristotle. It's all about Avicenna. So when he says the philosophers, al-philosopher, he means Avicenna. He doesn't mean Aristotle. And that just kind of keeps being true. So it's not like nobody cares about Aristotle at, at all anymore, but Avicenna is by far the more dominant figure as of the 12th century or so. And as I believe you argue in your book, it, Avicenna, in a way, uh, at least in the Islamic world, displaces Aristotle as sort of the archetype of a, of a philosopher, where now the, 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 the central sort of locus uh, of discourse around philosophy in the Islamic world is Avicenna. And, you know, whether it's in support of him or in, in opposition to him, everyone is responding to what he has to say, not what Aristotle has to say. Is it, is it correct to say that? Yeah, that's exactly right. There are uh, some exceptions to that. So you find occasional engagements with Aristotle, even in the centuries right after Avicenna. And then there's an upsurge of interest in Greek texts 
I mean, Greek text in Arabic translation in the Safavid period in uh, Iran. So when we get to the time of Mullah Sadra, for example, there's a lot more engagement with um, what the what the translation movement had imported into the Arabic language from Greek. But generally speaking, post-12th century philosophy is Avicenna philosophy in the Islamic world. And by the way, just to go back and say one more thing about like how my picture differs from the traditional picture, effectively what I'm saying is that the traditional picture was caused by a kind of optical illusion where people thought of philosophy in the Islamic world as just whatever had been translated into Latin. So they thought, okay, the philosophers we're interested in are going to be Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, Avicenna, Averroes, and then a few others, right? Some Jewish philosophers as well, like Maimonides, because they were translated into Latin. So this idea that philosophy in the Islamic world ends in 1200 is not a coincidence. The reason why people think that is because that's when the Arabic Latin translation movement happened. So it happened in obviously in the West, right, in Spain and Italy, and it happens around 1200. So if you if your texts are available in the Mediterranean, uh, if an Arabic philosophical text is available in the Mediterranean around 1200, it can make its way into Latin, and then it becomes kind of visible to the European tradition. But if you're further east or you live too late, like you live in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, your work will never be translated into Latin because it's too late for that. The translation movement's already happened. And so the European idea that philosophy in the Islamic world ended around 1200 is actually a self-inflicted delusion caused by the timing of their own translation movement, which is something hardly anybody understands, actually. So I'm hoping to get that across in the book. Uh, well, thank you for that. So I would like now to, to turn back to uh, the Jewish philosophers of the Islamic world, and particularly in the medieval period. Um, would you be able to give us a brief portrait of where, the, where Jewish intellectual thought was mapped on this terrain, I know the two, the two strands you identify are Rabbinic Judaism and Karaite Judaism. Um, where did they stand vis-a-vis Muslim philosophers? And can you talk to us a little bit about Musa ibn Maymun, a.k.a. Maimonides, and Sa'id ibn Yusuf al-Fayyumi, a.k.a. Sa'adiyya Ga'on? Sure. Uh, well, so maybe uh, the first thing to say as kind of background for this is that there's another way in which my book is trying to broaden the scope of um, what we think of as relevant for this story, because so far we've been talking mostly about Aristotelian philosophers like Avicenna, Averroes, Kindi, and so on. Uh, so people who are directly engaged with Greek texts. But I make a big deal in the book about the fact that um, Islamic theology, Kalam, can be thought of as a philosophical tradition in its own right, or at least some aspects of it are very philosophical. And you have to cover them in a history of philosophy in the Islamic world not only because they provide interesting context for the uncontroversial philosoph- cases of philosophers like Avicenna, but also because they're philosophically interesting. So for example, you have debates about free will or divine attributes or atomism or causation in Kalam that are very different from what you find among these philosophers, these uh, Hellenizing philosophers. And the reason I mention this now in answer to your question is that that is really a context for understanding Jewish philosophy. So Jewish philosophy uh, in Arabic and also Judeo-Arabic, so Arabic written in Hebrew letters and then later in Hebrew, um, that those texts respond to both Aristotelian philosophy and Kalam, Islamic theology. 
And one of the two figures you just mentioned, Saide Agan, is a perfect example. So he's a pretty early figure. He's in the formative period. He's like roughly around the same time as Al-Farabi, for example. So we're talking here about like the third or fourth generation of people to do philosophy af- during and after the translation movement. And he uses Aristotelian um, ideas. So for example, he talks about ideas from Aristotle's logic. But actually, he's more influenced by a school of Islamic theology called Mu'tazilism. And we probably don't have time to get into all the details, but for example, he has a very kind of um, restrictive view about divine attributes where he wants to emphasize God's transcendence and simplicity over the reality of multiple attributes. He follows the Mu'tazila when it comes to the teaching on human free will and so on. So with him, you have a kind of combination of ideas from Kalam and ideal ideas from Aristotelian philosophy, such as you also find in a lot of Muslim thinkers. But uh, maybe surprisingly, the dominant influence there is actually from the Islamic theological tradition, not the philosophical tradition that comes through the translation movement. And then, of course, he's also drawing on a lot of Jewish um, ideas. Here, um, it's relevant to point to the contrast you uh, mentioned briefly, which is between Qadite and rabbinical Judaism. So basically the difference there is that Qadite Jews don't uh, accept the validity of the oral rabbinical tradition that culminates in the Mishnah and Talmud, um, and rabbinical Jews do. So Saadia Gaon and then Maimonides, who you also mentioned, they're great champions of rabbinic Judaism. and it's interesting to notice that even though Saadia and Maimonides are in some respects comparable figures, so they're both trying to kind of use philosophical and theological ideas, which are, to some extent are borrowed from the Islamic wider cultural context, in order to help Jews understand their own religion better, the center of gravity is very different. So with Saadia, it's much more uh, a case of influence from Kalam. Whereas in Maimonides is much more a case of influence from Aristotle. And that's why I said earlier that to understand Maimonides, you have to understand the project of someone like Al-Farabi, who is like a hardcore Muslim Aristotelian. So if you understand that that was like an available intellectual project that Maimonides would have known about, then you can kind of see what he's doing. So what he's doing is trying to show you how Aristotelian philosophy relates to Judaism. And he's trying to read the Torah in line with certain philosophical strictures. Um, but he's also aware of Islamic kalam, so Islamic theology, and he refers to that as well. So this is a re- they're both really good examples, Saadia and Maimonides, of the point I made at the beginning, which is that you, you kind of need to locate Jewish philosophy within the context of the Islamic culture, which of course is the dominant political and social culture within, within which they operate. So next, I'd like to talk a little bit about another strand within uh, philosophy or Islamic philosophy, and that's the figure of Ibn Arabi, whom you describe as, quote, the greatest mind in the history of philosophical Sufism, end quote. And you say that he ought to be credited with bringing philosophy into the Sufi tradition. So the question is pretty straightforward. How exactly did did Ibn Arabi draw from the Islamic philosophical repository to formulate his mystical and Sufi theories? 
Okay, well, Ibn Arabi is an Andalusian thinker, so I cover him in the Andalusian part of the book. He's roughly contemporary with Averroes. In fact, they supposedly met, but he's not an Aristotelian commentator, to put it mildly. He's a Sufi, and he doesn't invent Sufism. So there are earlier Sufis like Rabi al-Adawiyah or al-Halaj, but he's probably the first or the, the, the most striking case of someone using a lot of philosophical theories in order to expound Sufism. And obviously, there's a lot you can say about this. Ibn Arabi's work is extremely vast, but maybe the most um, interesting thing to say about it is that he uh, is very interested in that question that I was just talking about um, in the context of Saadia, namely, um, how do we understand God as a pure unity? And how do we understand the various ways that God is described in Revelation or the words we use about God. So, uh, uh, for example, it says in the Quran both that God is wise and knowing and that he's powerful. So that sounds kind of uncontentious from an either Jewish or Muslim point of view. But now you could think about, well, if God is supposed to be a, a purely simple unity, then are we, don't we have three things here? So we have God and his wisdom and his power. Are his wisdom and power somehow the same thing as each other? But then how can wisdom be the same thing as power? That doesn't make any sense. Um, are they both the same thing as God? That seems kind of strange. Like I'm bald, but my baldness isn't exactly the same thing as me, right? So that, that's quite puzzling. And there's like a long, long history of people thinking about this. Um, what Ibn Arabi brings in is this really interesting idea, which I think actually could even be interesting for philosophers of language, which is that God's names, as are revealed to us in the Quranic revelation, are the way that God manifests himself. So they're both the way that God is known to us through his names, like through the name merciful, or through the name powerful, or through the name knowing. These are ways that we kind of grasp God's ultimately transcendent and purely unified nature. So uh, that's true on the one hand. On the other hand, it's not just that we know him through the names. The names are also the means by which he interacts with creation. So for example, power is not really to be understood as identical with God, or maybe better, the name powerful is not just exactly the same thing as God, but it's not different from God either. It's the way that God manifests power in the world that allows us to describe him as powerful. So that that idea, I think that sort of minimal distance between a thing and its name, that that could be a good way of thinking about the difference between God and the way that God relates to the world or God and the way that we know about God. I think that's a very fruitful idea, actually, and a, a really interesting idea as well. There's a lot more you could say about him. Um, but maybe one thing to add would just be that some another kind of idea that people often have about the later Islamic tradition is that it becomes totally dominated by Sufism and that it is sort of Ibn Arabi becomes the central figure for all post 12th century figures. But as we've already said, actually that role is played by Avicenna, who's very, very much not a Sufi mystic or he's, I mean, he has a few things to say about Sufism, but clearly he's not a Sufi. Um, and actually a better way of thinking about it is that there is a sort of strand within later Eastern Islamic thought, which is philosophical Sufism, where they combine ideas from Avicenna with ideas from Ibn Arabi, but that's only one strand. 
So on the one hand, that's another manifestation of Avicenna's influence. And on the other hand, it's not like the only game in town in later centuries. So this is a this is a good transition into the conversation on quote unquote decline narratives. I know, and I know we've touched on this already. And you write in your in your book that rather than offering to uh, explain this decline, you know, you say that there's no decline to explain. And in fact, you take it to the next level, and you say that quote to the contrary, a good case can be made that the very period in which philosophy and science supposedly died in the East was actually a golden age. Of philosophy in the Islamic world, end quote. And you identify four branches of Islamic philosophy that emerge from the 12th century onwards. And each one, as we've mentioned, responds to Avicenna. The first is Kalam, which is discursive or speculative theology. The second is Shi'i philosophy from the Ismaili and the 12 strands of Shi'ism. The third, of course, is Sufism. And the fourth, a unique tradition called Illuminationism. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what illumination, illumination, illuminationism is and demonstrate why for us, you know, what was its significance? Sure. Okay. Well, just to touch first on this question of whether there's a decline, um, I think here we really need to think about, um, what we expect from this tradition in terms of philosophy. So as we've already said, the idea that people are going to do philosophy as commentary on Aristotle and deep engagement with Greek ideas generally, it's true that that declines after the 12th century, right? But not because philosophy is gone. It's because philosophy has changed its character by becoming Avicennan. And there are proponents of Avicenna. There are critics of Avicenna. The critics of Avicenna attack him from a wide variety of angles. So sometimes he's attacked from on Sufi grounds, on sometimes he's attacked, but uh, on the grounds of Kalam positions. And so you get a very complicated situation, but Avicenna tends to be in the middle of all of that. And just in terms of quantity, I mean, uh, there, there are literally hundreds of philosophers or philosophical theologians in these later centuries. There are thousands of works, many of which um, are not edited yet never mind studied in European languages. So there's a lot still to do here. And it has to be said that um, that this section of the book on the later Eastern tradition is the least well grounded in like thorough research by me or by anyone else. Because as I say, there's thousands of books, uh, hundreds of authors. And I think probably it will take decades still for the scholarly community to really decide you know, who are the most important figures, which are the most important books. So um, within all that, there's a kind of further problem, which is that a group of scholars who have been very insistent on the value and importance of later Islamic thought have really come at it through the perspective that's given by the later Iranian tradition in part because that tradition still lives on in Iran today. And here the most important thinker is Mullah Sadra, who's a figure of the Safavid Iranian um, period. And Sadra himself um, sort of describes himself as an heir to this illuminationist tradition you mentioned, also to Avicenna and to Sufism. So he's a kind of syncretic thinker who brings together these different kind of strands of the Islamic intellectual heritage. So just to explain briefly what illuminationism is, um, the the word here in Arabic is ishraki. So 
this is a kind of word that was brought in by a figure named Suhravarji, another yet another philosopher of the 12th century, who is a post-Avicenna philosopher who is reacting to Avicenna critically, but also taking over a lot of his ideas. So you could actually think of Illuminationism as a kind of twist on Avicenna philosophy, which is very critical of Avicenna in some respects. And um, if you read some of the scholarship from previous, the past few decades, that is more open to the idea that later Islamic philosophy is really a thing, then you would often get the impression, oh, well, what happens is that after the 12th century, everything is Sufism and or Illuminationism, because Suravardi has mystical elements in his own thought. And then you have people like Sadra later on who are fusing Sufism with Avicenna and Suravardi. But actually, um, even that is a kind of misleading way of presenting it, because it's not like all the philosophers and all the philosophically minded theologians in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries are followers of Suhravardi. In fact, there are very few who are. So there's a couple of commentators on him who uh, may or may not agree with him <laughs> to different degrees. So you have people like Shahrazuri and Imkamuna who are deeply engaged with Suhravardi's thought. Um, but they're, I would say, the exception. And so it's really only in the Safavid period, period with Sadra and some like-minded thinkers like Mir Damad who take on this um, philosophical Sufism slash illuminationist tradition. Um, and I, 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 I guess I just don't really believe that illuminationism is nearly as dominant in this story as you would often think from reading scholarship on it. Um, so if you think about what happened to the Ottoman Empire, um, I mean, I'm not saying that illuminationism plays no role there, but what you mostly see is Avicenna slash Kalam philosophical theology, that kind of thing. So the kind of thing that was actually also more common in the 12th and 13th centuries that lives on in the Ottoman period as well. So it's very, very complicated later tradition. And I guess in a way, my overall message here is that anyone who tells you that there's just one intellectual strand that's worth taking seriously for post-Avicenna philosophy is wrong. So it's almost always true that Avicenna is in the background somewhere, but he's often in the background in a very mediated fashion. Like maybe you're reading commentaries on works that were not written by Avicenna, but were written by people who read Avicenna. So that's often the way that Avicenna is in the picture. And then there's all these different intellectual approaches that people take to that whole mess. So it's a quite a complicated situation. It was a hard part of the book to write, but I hope it's I hope it comes through clearly. So I'd like to jump to modernity now. Um, let's talk about the two Muhammads, as you call them, and two of my my own favorites, Muhammad Abdu and Muhammad Iqbal. How did these thinkers draw from and or diverge from their philosophical predecessors, and what were some of their significant contributions to Islamic thought in the modern period? Right. Okay. So I guess with both of them, they they sort of take us to more political issues, which we haven't really touched on very much yet, even though some, many of the thinkers that I've uh, mentioned, like Al-Farabi, for example, do discuss political philosophy. But they're both um, interesting because they give us a chance to see the viewpoint of Islamic intellectuals during the time of colonialism. So Mohammed Abdul is um, from Egypt or was from Egypt. He was born in 1849. Um, and uh, there, th so we're still here in the 
last half century or so of the Ottoman Empire during his life. And um, he's influenced very strongly by a teacher who then becomes his colleague named Jamal ad-Din al-Afghani, who's a Persian, um, whom he meets in 1869. The two of them later on work in Paris. They publish uh, journals and periodicals together. And uh, one thing that's really interesting, I think, about Abdu is that although he's often thought of as a kind of um, central figure of uh, trying to explain how Islam could modernize and somehow cope with the situation of colonialism, and although that's all true, he's off. He's also engaged with texts from the the tradition that we've just been discussing. Um, so, for example, he wrote a gloss on a commentary written by a Dawani on a theologian named Al-Iji. So, so we haven't mentioned them, but they're two of these um, very central figures in this post-Avicennan, Avicennizing Kalam tradition, right? And so the fact that he's doing that around the turn of the 20th century, I think is really amazing. And it shows the kind of continuity of the tradition. Another example is that he um, he taught an ethical work by a philosopher named Miskoway, who was a contemporary of Avicenna's. So if you imagine, you know, someone teaching an ethical treatise from the 11th century, as if this is still cutting edge ethics. Um, he was doing that at Al-Azhar in uh, Egypt. So I think that's really fascinating that um, that the um, you don't have this kind of real break uh, as you do in the European tradition where the Enlightenment comes along and sort of throws all the pre-modern stuff in the trash, right? Um, you, and, and in fact, by the way, this is kind of an irony because people are always talking about, you know, rupture, decline, et cetera, in the Islamic tradition. And actually, in a lot of ways, it's much more continuous and stable than the European philosophical tradition. So it's exactly wrong, that idea of kind of sudden decline. Um, so another, And then another thinker of around the same time, um, a little bit later, who's also thinking about colonialism and what it means for Islam is Muhammad Iqbal who lives in India during the time of British rule. So his dates are 1877 to 1938. And his uh, sort of primary concern, I guess, is to think about how Islam or how Muslims should respond to this political situation. And he, although um, his ideas influence Pakistani nationalism later on, he's really, as I understand him, not a nationalist. He's more like a pan-Islam hyper-nationalist. So the, what I mean by that is that what he wants is he wants to unify Muslims all over the world and not found Islamic nation states, but sort of um, seek a religious and intellectual unity that cuts across ethnicity, geographical boundaries, national boundaries, and so on. So he wants to uh, kind of unify Islam as a single religion. Um and uh, to do this, he wrote philosophical works. He also wrote poems, um, and he was trying to kind of renew Islam by calling Muslims back to their the original teachings, which is a kind of gesture you see in a lot of modernizing Islam. Um, paradoxically, that they think they can modernize Islam by going back to the original roots of Islam and getting away from these Western paradigms. So, in fact, the modern nation state for him would be such a Western paradigm. That's one reason why he doesn't base his whole political program around nationalism or national boundaries. 
So let's talk about women philosophers of modernity, and two stick out in this book. It's Aisha Abdurrahman or Bint al-Shati of Egypt and Fatima Mernisi of Morocco, both of whom are from you know very recent 20th century. Uh, Mernisi only recently passed away. Uh, what did their philosophical approach look like, and what new ideas did they bring, or what challenges did they offer uh, to the table as Muslim women? Well, in general, I, I should say, um, or I guess I already did say this, but it's worth repeating that uh, one of the kind of agendas of the whole podcast series and book series that's based on the podcast is to include and highlight the contributions of female authors in all of these traditions. So, you know, when I did medieval philosophy, I did Hildegard of Bingen, and I did Catherine of Siena, and so on, right? So it's always been um, very important to me to uh, try to not just get women in there, as it were, just like because it's politically correct or something, but just uh, what I'm trying to say is that that actually is just good history of philosophy. So just as you should not only think about Avicenna, for example, but also think about the less famous people who follow on from him, um, like Adawani, say, who actually is super important. So maybe he's a bad example, but um, like supposedly minor figures, I often want to highlight them. And uh, because as I said before, female figures tend to be supposedly minor figures because they often weren't taken seriously or their works weren't read and commented upon by male authors. Um, This is just kind of, is kind of built into the whole way that I'm trying to um, do the project. So in the case of um, women in the Islamic world, you can actually sort of go all the way back to the beginning and think about the intellectual role played by women throughout the whole of Islamic history. And um, I try to do that a little bit in the book. Of course, that would be a very big project. It could be a book, at least one book of its in its own right. One thing I highlight is that um, within the religious sciences, women had also often been very important, for example, as transmitters of hadith or as hadith scholars or teaching religious, giving religious education to their family members or to others. Um, so I kind of pick out a, a bunch of women um, in the history. I also point out that women have been his- important in the history of Sufism, like Rabia al-Adawiya, who I mentioned earlier. And then that, that part of the book ends with a look at these two 20th century authors who you mentioned, um, Bint Ashati, which is a pen name. So that means the daughter of the shore who died in 1998. And she actually illustrates what I was just saying, namely that women are often engaged in uh, kind of religious learning, the transmission of religious learning. So she writes Quranic commentary, which is really interesting and unusual um, to have a woman writing such extensive Quranic commentary. And she writes a work called The Wives of the Prophet, where she kind of retells Muhammad's life story from the viewpoint of his wives. It's a really interesting project that sounds very feminist. Um, Actually, Ruth Roded, who is someone who's worked on this figure, says that Binta Shati is not particularly feminist and in fact kind of works some um, kind of sexist, standard sexist tropes into the characterization of these wives. But nonetheless, I would say that there's there's something like inherently feminist about the whole project, right? Like to sort of retell the founding story of Islam 
from the point of view of how women would have seen it. I think that's really interesting. Um, and this also connects to her political activities to some extent because she was a political activist who was um, sort of pleading for the rights and better treatment of uh, peasants, including women peasants in Egypt. So a really interesting figure. Maybe even more interesting though is Fatima, Mar- Fatima Manisi, who, um, as you said, died recently. So she was born in uh, 1941. She's Moroccan and was a professor of sociology in Morocco. And she, as, as you would expect, she did sociological research. So she interviewed people in Morocco. Um, and But she also wrote works that are kind of hard to classify. I mean, they sort of look like works of religious scholarship, but they're also very outspokenly feminist. And so a typical thing for her to do would be to take a supposed hadith, in other words, a report of something the prophet said, which is used to um, repress women or suggest that women have to play a subordinate role in society. And then she exposes it to actually very traditional forms of hadith criticism and tries to show that the hadith is not sound. Um, or another, another case is that she tries to show that the whole tradition of veiling women is based on a misunderstanding of the religious texts in question. And so she actually is another one of these examples of a modernist who says, well, what we need to do is not kind of um, assimilate Islam to a kind of 20th century or in her case, even 21st century political agenda. Rather, what we need to do is go back to the original teachings of Islam before it was corrupted. And the corruption in her view happens very quickly because even within the first few generations of Islam, you already have men kind of inventing false hadith and uh, twisting the message of the prophet to make it much more hostile to women than it actually was. And she actually thinks that... um, Islam was, if anything, a kind of at least for by its own the standards of its own day was a, a very it was a kind of feminist religious movement. So at one point she says, I have a quote from her handy here, where she says, according to my reading of the historical evidence, Islam banished all practices in which the sexual self determination of women was asserted. So in other words, um, the uh, the the way that Islam kind of came in as a social structure on top of the original uh, revelation was to um, was, was really motivated by uh, what she even calls fear of women. So their fear of their independence, fear of them as sexual beings. But Islam itself originally, um, as she says, does not advance the thesis of women's inherent inferiority. So she thinks that there's, she tries to um, show a kind of break between the prophet's original message and the way that it was understood in later traditions. And like I say, it's interesting that she um, uses the techniques of traditional Hadith scholarship and religious scholarship to do that. Um, obviously, I'm not really like in a position to judge how convincing any of this is because I'm not an expert on um, Islamic uh, religious sciences. I'm an expert on the history of philosophy to the extent that I'm an expert on anything. But I I think it's interesting, right? And it's it's interesting to see how she carries on an older tradition of women being engaged in the religious sciences, but now for this like really explicitly feminist purpose. Well, Peter, I wish we could discuss more, but there's just so much to cover, and it's truly spectacular um, that you know you were able to write this book. And I hope this conversation gave our listeners a taste of what this very accessible and this very rich text 
has to offer. Um, so as a final treat, I was wondering if you'd be willing to share with us what you're currently working on or what we can look forward to from you in the future. Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm always doing my like real research. Um, and in fact, one thing I'm doing is um, is uh, running a research project here in Munich on the reception of Avicenna in the 12th and 13th centuries, which I started thinking about in part from working on the podcast, actually, because I thought, oh, there's a there's a huge amount of text here that needs to be worked on and isn't being worked on. I'm also running a big research project funded by the ERC on animals in philosophy in the Islamic world, which is uh, really, really interesting. Um, but then in the podcast at the moment, uh, I'm doing philosophy in the Italian Renaissance, and I am doing also in alternate weeks I do European and non-European philosophy. And so the European part at the moment is the Italian Renaissance. The non-European part is the is at the Africana philosophy series, which I'm doing together with Chike Jeffers. Um, so as you, I think you mentioned, we've already done Indian philosophy, which I did together with Gennard Gennari, hoping to do Chinese philosophy as well with another co-author. But at the moment, um, we're like in the middle of the 19th century. So I kind of alternate weeks between thinking about Marsilio Ficino and thinking about Frederick Douglass at the moment, which is a lot of fun. Um, and these will all become books in the series. So the uh, India Indian philosophy one is just about to come out. Um, I guess the volume on Byzantine and Renaissance philosophy will come out maybe in about two years. And maybe the first book on Africana philosophy will come out around the same time. So it's all churning through, um, but it takes a while. <laughs> Looking forward to all of that. Well, there you have it, folks. Philosophy in the Islamic World, a history of philosophy without any gaps by Peter Adamson. Thank you for joining us today, Peter. Thank you so much for having me on.